everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Table, Conversations on Youth Justice, the show where we take on issues of youth justice in Michigan. I'm your host, Gabrielle Dresner, and with me again is my co-host, Hussein. Gabby, thank you so much for having me on. feels like I'm going to be a permanent co-host. Yeah, I'm excited to not have to talk for 20 minutes straight by myself. It'll be a lot more fun having <laughs> someone do this with me. <laughs> Today, we are going to be talking about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on youth in Michigan's justice system. Congregate living facilities are inherently high-risk environments for viral spread. This is where young people are housed closely together in pods, units, or dorm-style housing, and it's precisely the kind of conditions that raise concerns about nursing homes and prisons and led to the closure of universities across the country when the pandemic hit. Today, we're going to take a look at two of the reports that Michigan Center for Youth Justice put out following the pandemic that looked at the initial impact of COVID-19 on justice-involved kids and some of the longer-term impacts. So Hussein, why don't you get us started with the first report that MCYJ did with Wayne State University's Center for Behavioral Health and Justice? Yeah, absolutely. So our first report, and this is actually before I joined the staff, but I was so glad that I was able to read this report and talk to you all about this. Um, this came at the beginning of the pandemic at a time when um, COVID-19 was rampant. Um, it was not only costing our, um, you know, our economy a lot, but it was also costing our youth who were in a lot of these residential facilities. And so in March of 2020, the state court administrative office issued a memorandum asking courts to take steps to reduce the population inside of facilities uh, in, in the interest of public health. Uh, and what, the, what this meant was that certain youth would uh, be released after a risk and needs assessment. Um, but it also meant that, you know, we could take a harder look at which youth were being kept and for what reasons. Um, and, you know, some of those uh, key factors that would be assessed um, were the, you know, like the likelihood of an individual returning to crime, violence, or drug use. Uh, and when used, when developed and used correctly, these risks slash needs assessments, uh, tools can be, it can help criminal justice officials appropriately classify offenders and target interventions to reduce recidivism and improve public safety and cut costs as a whole. Uh, and so that was, you know, all that happened in March of 2020. Yeah, so after the initial memorandum was issued by SCAO, the state court administrative office sent out standards and guidelines relating to the operations of virtual courtrooms. So because the pandemic, the guidelines were people to, you know, stay home, stay apart, social distance, the courts went about doing this by taking a look at best practices for virtual court. And there was actually a specific task force assigned to this. And that task force released these standards and guidelines, which included that the defendants and the victim's constitutional rights to be present must be um, you know, addressed and included, even if court is done virtually, that there had to be the opportunity for confidential communication between a defendant and their counsel, and that um, ex exhibits and signatures could be submitted electronically. So typically these things are done in person. You know, you submit a hard copy or you sign something with a pen and paper, but um, due to everything being moved online, they had to set out these guidelines saying that electronic signatures were allowed. Um, it also created a record of the proceedings 
and stated that there needed to be the maintained decorum of the court and also allowed public and press to access open proceedings. So a lot of the same stuff that you would see in a typical courtroom, but just slightly adjusted and written out clearly in a way that makes it very apparent what's expected from virtual courtrooms. Yeah, and you know, another actor in this uh, whole situation is Governor Whitmer. Uh, she issued a number of recommendations and it'll become clear what that means in just a sec. Um, but the governor can issue uh, executive orders, especially after and during a, uh, a public health crisis like COVID-19. And so Governor Whitmer's recommendations in, in light of the crisis uh, included you know, restrictions on visitors, health evaluations on staff and visitors entering a facility. Um, and what that means was you know, visitations uh, were gonna be conducted by phone or electronic communications, you know, consistent with normal visitation policy. Um, but then you know, they would also deny entry to those with fever or symptoms or people that were in contact uh, with someone that had COVID-19, uh, which is a, a big difference. But here's the other thing that's important is because the juvenile justice system uh, in Michigan is county-based, the governor only has the ability to strongly recommend uh, that facilities reduce the number of confined youth uh, by removing, you know, by removing placement as an option, unless the youth is in immediate and uh, substantial risk, uh, safety risk to themselves or others. And so this would hopefully mean that there would be no placement for technical violations or, you know, status offenses. Um, but these, again, are only recommendations. Uh, later on, the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services uh, issued guidelines based on the governor's recommendations. Um, which included, you know, reviewing cases for early release, prohibiting prohibiting placement uh, for technical violations, uh, and placement based on risk assessment, uh, demonstrating substantial and immediate safety risk. And so you could see here, you know, based on these recommendations, that the governor's goal was to ensure that the only kids that would still be in these facilities would be kids that were, you know, that presented a substantial risk to themselves or others, uh, and others could be uh, could be released in order to uh, maintain the public health. Yeah, so I did just want to clarify um, the definition of a technical violation, um, in case some of our listeners don't know what that is. A technical violation is when a kid is under court supervision, and they do something that the court has said they are not allowed to do, like staying out too late or not going to school. Um, so it's not necessarily that they are committing another offense. It's something that is um, a violation of the terms that the court has set out for them. So it's not necessarily a safety risk. It's just something that the court said, hey, uh, don't do this. And then the kid did it. So that's why placement for technical violations is one of the things that was sort of carved out for COVID-19 because those kids are not really um, presenting risk to themselves or others, like potentially some of uh, the kids that were kept in placement. So now that we've gone over a bit of the background of what the government did when the pandemic happened um, as a whole and how the state handled the pandemic as it pertains to kids in the justice system, we're gonna talk a little bit about how local courts handled it. So the Michigan Center for Youth Justice and Wayne State University Center for Behavioral Health and Justice conducted a survey um, of 13 non-identified courts about their protocols for keeping youth safe during the pandemic. So during this survey, um, most 
reports reported a reduction in detained youth. And that's what we expected to see based on, of all, on all of the recommendations from the governor and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services and the state court administrative office. So it is great that we saw a reduction in detained youth. And this was in part to modifications in detention screenings, but also, like I mentioned, the changes in admissions criteria and um, you know, only detaining those youth who were deemed immediate and substantial safety risks. But then also some of the counties um, suspended admissions from outside counties who were renting beds in their facilities. So what that means is that in Michigan, some counties will rent out their detention facility beds to other counties who either don't have a facility or have um, you know, hit their capacity at their facility. And so due to the pandemic, those admissions from external counties were stopped. Um, so that's one of the other reasons that we were seeing uh, reduced um, number of detained youth. So part of this process also was that courts uh, considered the availability of services uh, in the community in which uh, the, that the youth came from. So that meant reviewing the cases of youth with nonviolent offenses uh, for, for early release uh, and community-based services. And what that means really is understanding the resources available to a youth when they do return home uh, and adding that as a factor in the determination of uh, allowing them to leave the facility. Um, but that also includes having video conferencing for hearings to make you know, those more accessible. Yeah, so those youth that were released back into the Hussein, um, they looked at the different community-based um, alternatives to incarceration, but unfortunately we know that some kids were not able to be released and that they did remain in the facilities. So for those kids that remained in facilities, we took a look at the protections that they were getting from um, the COVID-19 pandemic. And that included things like intensified cleaning and sanitizing procedures, um, unfortunately suspended in-person visitation, which we did talk a little bit about. And that is because we, you know, the people in the facilities didn't want people outside the facilities bringing anything in. Um, so visitation in-person was suspended. Um, they also reduced the number of staff present while staying in compliance with licensing requirements. They looked at regular health screens and implemented regular health screening for anyone going in or out of the facility. And when a youth was symptomatic, there was medical isolation. And if possible, they sent the youth home to their families with medical support as needed. Yeah, and as you mentioned that they, they suspended visitation, they did uh, continue to have alternatives for visitation, um, like video calls, uh, increased frequency of free phone calls, make sure that um, you know youth could have their, their families as a support system. Yeah, we know that family support and community support is a major factor in kids being successful. And um, we will talk about that a little bit later as well, how the impact um, or what the impact of that decreased visitation was. So the video calls and phone calls were really crucial during this time. And for those kids that were released, there um, were still court supervision and community supervision, as well as treatment for those kids that were released back to the community. And that included electronic communication, like 
phone calls for probation reporting and telehealth communication, but there were also suspended or relaxed probation requirements to really just try and give these kids a chance of success in truly one of the most abnormal times of their lives. Yeah, and Gabby, as we move to the final part of this first report that talks about recommendations, um, you know, one of the things that the report talks about is the opportunities that uh, COVID-19 presented in this area of juvenile justice. Um, and I'm going to read directly from the report here. It says, if we are able to safely defer a large proportion of juvenile juveniles from detention due to COVID-19, might we be able to continue to defer larger numbers from detention in the future? And I think this is critical. This is a concept that I think, you know, we should really explore because you know, if we are able to make these changes at a time of crisis, and ultimately they do lead to better outcomes for our youth, maybe we can, maybe we can stick with some of those changes. Uh, and so can you tell us a little bit about what those recommendations were that this, that this report, uh, that this report made for uh, juvenile detention centers? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that quote that you read from the report is really like the crux of the report, right? Like, if we can safely return these kids to their communities and you know keep both the kids their families and their community safe then shouldn't we keep doing that so a, a more tangible way of looking at that is the recommendations at the end of this report which were to reduce admissions to detention centers like we have talked about um, reducing the length of stay in detention so really using it as a sort of acute detaining method rather than a long-term stay looking at utilizing technology to communicate with youth, families, legal counsel, and courts, and providing expanded treatment options. So talking about that community-based program again, and looking at how can we serve these kids in their communities with their families where they're most likely to succeed, ensuring consistent re-entry planning for all kids, so one of the things that we saw here was with these kids going back to the community, it's really crucial that we make sure that they're getting the supports that they need as they re-enter the community. And lastly, the last recommendation from the first report was to implement statewide data reporting and analysis to better track youth in placements and to determine if these changes that were made due to COVID-19 have an impact on juvenile justice outcomes which kind of leads us into our second analysis, which was um, a second report that MCYJ conducted. And this was in partnership with Public Policy Associates Incorporated. For that study, the Michigan Center for Youth Justice looked at 20 of Michigan's 30 secure juvenile facilities who provided data for the study including both detention and secure treatment facilities located in every region of the state. Um, we were also able to conduct interviews with 11 juvenile court administrators. So Gabby, at this point, do you wanna quickly make a distinction between secure juvenile detention facilities uh, and, and residential facilities? Yeah, so a secure juvenile detention facility um, is I guess more akin to like what we would think of as jail for adults. Um, you know, it's sort of like where a kid stays like right before court or something like that. And a residential facility is a more long-term treatment type of facility. Yeah, thanks so much for, for clarifying that. Um, so yeah, you know, those facilities provided data um, that confirmed that the overall number of youth confined in uh, secure juvenile facilities decreased 
uh, following you know the start of the pandemic in in March of 2020, uh, and they remained below pre-pandemic numbers throughout the next six months. And so you know, looking at this in terms of what our goals were early on, if the goal was to uh, decrease the population of these facilities during the pandemic in the interest of public health, uh, they were successful. Um, and nearly all of the courts implemented or expanded existing assessment screening processes to limit the use of secure confinement. So we would also probably consider that a success. But this is, you know, this is in the immediate aftermath of the um, of the initial recommendations. I would also like to note that apart from the reduction of numbers of youth in secure confinement, courts also noted that there was just an overall drop in referrals to juvenile court as well. Um, and this, you know, could be due to many things, some of which is that, you know, kids aren't going outside, nobody is going outside, there's less opportunity to get into mischief. Um, but it also is probably partially due to, um, like we mentioned from the last report, that there were recommendations to keep nonviolent, non-dangerous kids out of the system as a whole. Taking a look at March and April 2020, the average daily population decreased by more than 60% at some facilities and less than 5% at others. So we're seeing a really big spread of a decrease in population there. Looking at September 2020, those numbers remained lower than pre-pandemic numbers for most facilities, though there were several for which the average daily population in September 2020 was similar or higher um, than the average population in the months prior to the pandemic. So we're really seeing a couple of months into this pandemic, sort of a wide variety of population numbers there. Yeah, and, and Gabby, just on this data that you're sharing here, uh, listeners can find the graph that you're referring to in our second report. Um, and it kind of really shows how the numbers have fluctuated uh, during, the, during the pandemic. Um, you know, we've mentioned a couple of times that family is an important part of a youth's treatment and their recovery. Uh, and, you know, one of the findings of this, in this report is that, you know, court administrators uh, describe cases where youth in these residential facilities became frustrated with the public health orders and facility policies uh, that limited contact with families and restricted opportunities for activities outside the facility, uh, which, you know, creating these uh, restrictions uh, makes, you know, these residential facilities into you know, something that's closer to a detention facility. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times this is, uh, this leads to youth acting out, to trying to run away, um, and eventually they end up back in a secure detention facility. And so, you know, one of the key findings of this report is that those, you know, those opportunities to interact with family and interact with a support system are really, really important. And even in a pandemic and a crisis like this, they have to be maintained in some way. Yeah, exactly. And we did mention that a bit in the first report as well. But this follow-up report really just highlights how crucial those family and community ties are. Um, we also mentioned in the last report that courts had initially turned to web-based video conferencing to conduct hearings and meet with kids and their families. So in this follow-up report, we asked some of those court administrators how they felt about virtual conferencing and how it was working for them. 
many of the courts said that the option to attend hearings from one's own home actually resulted in increased engagement for youth because they appeared to be more comfortable in the familiar in their familiar space rather than the sterility of a courtroom. So we were actually seeing that some courts were saying, you know, the virtual courtroom actually increased their kids' engagement. Yeah, and uh, you know, taking you know a different perspective on this now, talking about how the changes in the population affected some of the other things that we like to track, like you know racial inequity or you know how many boys there are versus girls. Um, you know, one important thing to mention is that Black youth account for seventeen percent of all Michigan youth aged ten to seventeen, um, but they accounted for forty six percent of the youth uh, in the study sample that we reference in, in the report. Um, you know, one of the things that we found in, in the study is that the efforts to reduce the number of youth confined in secure facilities had little impact on the racial imbalance. Uh, and, you know, it kind of actually stays consistent throughout, um, throughout the time period that we assess in the report. Uh, boys accounted for a larger drop than girls in, you know, the time period that we studied. Uh, but since there are more boys than girls in the system, this actually is consistent uh, with, uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and then courts reported limiting confinement to those who posed immediate and considerable risks, but status offenses still made up a portion uh, of the offenses confined uh, for which uh, youth were confined during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, there's other factors that were captured in this data um, that can influence risk uh, and might also play a role in the confinement of these youth. Yeah, and really quick, I just want to mention um, status offenses are offenses for um, kids, basically. Like, it's things that you can only get in trouble for if you're a kid, um, like underage drinking, underage driving, uh, staying out past curfew, missing too much school, those kinds of things. Um, so status offenses are typically nonviolent offenses. Um, and it's really an interesting point that they made up a portion of the offenses uh, for those kids confined during the pandemic. Um, so looking at the implications of all these changes, um, we could see that there was an increased use of electronic monitoring. Um, so we mentioned already that courts were using virtual conferencing to check in on kids and virtual conferencing for probation and things like that. There was also an increase of supervision of kids in the community. There was an increased coordination with community-based systems. So we mentioned that in the first report, courts were really relying heavily on community-based programming. And this report just emphasizes that point and drives it home. We mentioned again that kids were more likely to be comfortable in the courtroom and uh, in their homes through the virtual courtroom. And that actually led to decreased violations due to noncompliance. So this system level change was really impacting youth behavior. And we're seeing that these virtual and community-based programmings are actually reducing the number of confined youth. So this was really kind of shoved into place due to an emergency situation, but we're taking this opportunity to look at the data coming out of it and seeing some really interesting results like you know, kids being returned to the community and still being safe. There is limited data on the community impact of this change because it is still relatively early to be looking at data as far as uh, research world goes. But what we found from the Michigan State Corps Administrative Office 
was that juvenile delinquency filings were down 32% statewide in 2020 compared to 2019. So that's a really steep drop and it is reflective of what we were seeing from the recommendations from the governor and the Department of Health and Human Services. Yeah, thanks for thanks for expanding on that, Gabby. And you know, before we jump into the recommendations made uh, at the end of this report, I just want to highlight for um, listeners that you know, in this report, we have a number of um, what I might call testimonials or quotes from uh, you know court administrators around the state that are are basically sharing their own experience. And one of the ones that was that was really striking to me was from Jan Otto. Uh, she's the deputy trial court administrator in Barry County. Uh, and she says, we have re we've referred more families to the wraparound program and will continue to do so. And juvenile prob probation has worked to have uh, meaningful consequences other than detention for our youth so they don't think they're getting away with something. And this is, I think, a really important, uh, you know, a really important point where, you know, courts have seen the different, the different effects of uh, of the pandemic, of some of the uh, recommendations that they've adopted, and they've also seen some of the benefits of a different approach. Um, a lot of times, you know, with the with the way that these courts were uh, overwhelmed before, they didn't have the time to consider these alternatives. Given the opportunity, a lot of them have embraced uh, these wraparound programs and these other and these other assessments. So, Gabby, can you walk us through what some of these some of our recommendations are in this report? So the recommendations that came out of this report are pretty similar to the recommendations that came out of the first report, which is to be expected given that a lot changed over the course of the year, but also not enough changed. So we recommended the expansion of community-based alternatives in relation to confinement. So expanding and using more community-based programs, reducing racial and ethnic disparities among youth in confinement. So like you mentioned, Hussein. Uh, the racial and ethnic disparities were still pretty strong even throughout the pandemic. Uh, maintaining high standards of care within secure facilities and ensuring consistent re-entry planning for all the youth released. And then implementing statewide data and reporting to better track youth in placements. Um, so again, that's the same as the last report, but I think it really just hammers home that Michigan needs better statewide data reporting and analysis for kids in the justice system. So as we wrap up here, we have a couple of questions that are sort of food for thought that we'll leave you with and you can think on and respond to us either on Facebook or Twitter or send us a message what you think about all of the COVID-19 impact on kids. So one of which we already talked about at the end of the first report, if we are able to safely defer a larger portion of youth from detention, uh, might we be able to continue doing this in the future? If we can safely and effectively serve kids in the community now, can't we do that more in the future? And if it's safe and, safe and cost effective, shouldn't we keep doing this? And I will just sort of cap those questions off with a little note that research shows that youth served in the community have improved outcomes compared to those served in a facility. So we can really take a look at all of the impacts from COVID-19 and um, you know, take away this little bit of good that has come from it in that we are now seeing that we can and should be serving kids in the community more frequently. Gabby, thanks so much for, for walking us through this, uh, through these reports. Uh, and, you know, I, I really have to hand it to you. You guys did a great job 
writing these reports. You know, one of the things we mentioned early on is that there is not a centralized uh, you know, place where all this data is, uh, you know, communicated and tracked. Um, and so it really took a lift from, from our team to get all of this data, follow up with these courts and these administrators. Um, so, you know, big congrats to you on being able to produce this report and, you know, bring a lot of these, uh, you know, these findings to light. It's very, very valuable work. And I hope, you know, listeners will be able to find these reports, um, you know, be able to share them online and share our future work. You can find all of this on our website, uh, miyouthjustice.org, uh, and you can find our social media on our website as well. And we would love it if you could uh, share these posts on your personal social media as well. Yeah, and thanks for mentioning that. Um, I will have those reports linked in the show notes as well. So um, you can take a, a look at our website. You can find them in the show notes. I really recommend everyone take a look at these. And like Hussein said, it really helps us out if you share these reports and tell your friends. So that's all the time that we have for today. Um, but before we go, I'd like to thank Hussein for joining me again. Um, it's great having you on the show and I'm looking forward to doing future episodes with you. Pleasure to be here. Also, keep an eye out for our future events. MCYJ is going to be hosting a gala in the spring. You can find details on that on our website. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to help support the show. If you'd like more information on any of the topics we discussed today, there are links in the show notes. To donate to MCYJ and support our work, please go to miyouthjustice.org. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash miyouthjustice, Twitter at justicenmi, and Instagram at MI Center for Youth Justice. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time at the table. Cut. Cut. <laughs> we finally made it through. <laughs> <laughs>